2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Podcast. I'm one of the co-hosts, Evan Ratliff. This week we're doing a series of interviews with winners of the George Polk Journalism Awards. And today I spoke to Maria Abi Habib. She is the New York Times Bureau Chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. She won the award this year along with her colleague Francis Robles and the Times staff for a series of stories about the assassination of Haiti's president, Jovenel Moise. Just to give you a little background for these stories, Moist was gunned down in his home in July of 2021, and the story about who might be behind it unfolded over many months, culminating in this very long story by Maria, in which she uncovered a huge amount of new information, both on Moise and on the murder, including the fact that he had compiled a list of suspected high-level drug traffickers in Haiti and was threatening to act on that list. Uh, She discovered connections to both the former president, whose name is Michelle Martelli, and to a prominent businessman in Haiti named Charles St. Remy, who was allegedly on the list. It's just incredible reporting. And she walked me through uh, how she did it and also how she sort of thinks about and works on these kinds of stories in general. I spoke to her in Mexico City, where she's based. And here's Maria Abihabib. Maria, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to have you. And you're currently the Bureau Chief for Mexico, Central America, and the Caribbean. So could you tell me a little bit about how you arrived at this bureau and sort of where you came from and a little bit about your journalistic background? Yeah, sure. Um, So, you know, I am the daughter of uh, a Lebanese man and an American woman, uh, a Mexican-American woman. So I grew up with Lebanon always in the back of our minds and the ability to be able to go back. And the problem with Lebanon was that it was going through a pretty terrible 15-year civil war from 1975 until about 1990. And so growing up, I always watched my parents as they tried to get news from from Lebanon. And this was, you know, 80s and the 90s where the internet wasn't available. BBC World News was always on in our car. CNN was always on in the evenings. And, you know, my dad, the way that his eyes would light up when somebody would bring back a, a newspaper in Arabic was always something that I would remember because, as we know, local news always does it best, right? You can pick up an article about Lebanon in the Washington Post or in the New York Times, and it will be a good article. But if you really just want the day-to-day, like what's actually happening on the ground, local news is always just going to be that much stronger. And so I knew from a very young age that I wanted to be a journalist. I mean, I think I was running around telling people this when I was about eight years old. So, yeah. That is early. And the one thing that always struck me was that 
yes, you do need the day to day, but like, how do you move a story forward? And I think that that's a really important thing that I always tell, you know, my colleagues as the bureau chief here, which is there's just so much information out there and we owe it to our readers not to drag them down in color. Color is important. Color is good. It brings us to where the scene is. But I think that the days of just saying like, I'm a journalist and I went to Nepal and look at the beautiful things I have seen. Like that's over, right? Like people are traveling a lot these days. You know, there's no more of this like weird orientalism when it comes to trying to like eroticize these places, romanticize these places. And we need to always kind of constantly think like people are being bombarded by so much information. How do we give readers the story that's going to further their knowledge the most and also teach them something new. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, when you arrive in this bureau, tell me a little bit about how you sort of orient yourself to try to figure out what all needs to be covered in this. I mean, it's a big area that you're the bureau chief for and how you come to, you know, look at a place like Haiti and be ready for when a story like this one emerges. So I don't think there was much preparation that anybody could have done. I mean, I'd been on the job for about six months when this president was assassinated. I'd never been to Haiti before. But I think that the lack of humility that a lot of journalists, like there's a lack of humility and this assumption that a journalist just has everything available to them. And I always come into these places saying like, actually, I know absolutely nothing and I really need your help. And that is when I find that people point me to the best sources or the best piece of news that I might have missed or, you know, points me somewhere on the map and says, you really need to look over there. That was how I approached Haiti, which is, and this is how I approach every country, which is I'm a guest here. I'm here to help you tell the stories that you feel need to be told from your country. What do I need to be looking at? And I think that, you know, people find that really refreshing. Mm hmm. So what do you remember about when you first heard about the assassination? What happens for you when something like this breaks? So when something like this breaks, what happens is that whatever desk is up uh, in the New York Times, we have three global desks, New York, London, and Seoul. And so whatever desk is up when any event happens, you start getting phone calls from that desk. And so I think London was up because it was you know 2 a.m. or something like that our time. And then you just wake up to like 30 missed calls and you think like, oh shoot, what have I missed? <laughs> and then you freak and then you, you know, call back and they, they tell you the head of state of Haiti has been assassinated. And so then, you know, everybody kind of jumps into gear and we're very lucky at the New York times to have a huge operation, which is that, you know, if I'm sleeping and I don't wake up to that phone call, I have colleagues in London that can start putting up a story. And it's really a team effort. Not one reporter could have pulled off covering the assassination because it, it was a gargantuan task. And so tell me a little bit about how you start to break it down as time goes on. And how do you sort of balance trying to get news out there fast versus it seems like there's just a lot of bad information floating around in this particular situation. I mean, this president's been assassinated in the middle of the night by gunmen who appear to be have been led into the home. And there's all these theories swirling about who could be involved? What is the process by which you start to try to break through that? I mean, at the very beginning, you're not thinking about like the bigger what the hell just happened story. That's 
you know, something that's in the back of your mind, but the first like 48, 72, however many hours, you're really just figuring out how to cover the spot news. And so Catherine Porter, who's the Canada Bureau Chief and had been to Haiti multiple times, um, was the first to go down there. And she was instrumental to making sure that like, we just had somebody on the ground who was pulling together the best day story possible. And then we're also thinking like in the back of our minds, which is who the hell did this? And so I just started calling up different analysts on Haiti and State Department officials and basically just saying, who the hell do you think did this? And then two names came up and those were the names that I pursued. And everything that, you know, all my reporting afterwards kind of fleshed out that there were serious problems between these individuals and the president before he was killed. So you said you got these two names. Did you go hit the ground first and try to poke around or were you just making calls into Haiti? Like, how did the process sort of get going? First, I pursued the story that happened in August, which was about how the DEA had this huge bust of about 1,100 kilograms of cocaine and heroin that was coming in through Haiti that involved some big businessmen or big business families, I should say, and politicians. Um, People basically connected to Moise's predecessor, Michelle Martelli, who will probably become Haiti's next president, and also tapped Moise to replace him, to succeed him. So he basically was the president, then he was term limited. He kind of tapped this guy to be the next president to kind of hold the place in the middle so he could run again. Exactly, exactly. Basically, the constitution of Haiti is that you can run multiple times, but you can't have two consecutive terms. So what often happens is you have people kind of playing this like back and forth. I'll be president, then you're next, and then I'm coming after, and then you're going to go again. (laughs) And what Martelli did was he tapped somebody who was basically like a weak political outsider who was Jovenel Moise, which meant that he had outsized influence over the presidency. And the Martellis, they're all tied in business-wise, they're musicians, they collaborate with each other, they have best-selling albums, they go on tour together, you know, they serve in each other's government. So that story led me to somebody named Keith McNichols, who was a former DEA agent based in Haiti, who had tried to run down this drug shipment, found a bunch of politically connected people, corrupt police officers, etc. People, you know, all the way up to the presidential palace of Michelle Martelli. And he tried to pursue the case and was stopped every way, both by corruption within the DEA office, allegedly, and also allegedly corrupt Haitian police and then presidential advisors or, you know, people connected to the presidency. And so having spoken to Keith and kind of unraveling what went wrong in that case and how some of those same figures were still intimately involved in President Moise's administration up until the day he was assassinated, you know, led me to political insiders in Haiti who helped me then break the December story, which was what exactly happened in the last, you know, seven, eight months of of Moise's life. And we don't blame anybody. We don't actually like say this is the person who did it. But, you know, I think that it's, it's fairly easy for readers to come to their own conclusions. Yes, I would say so. So this ex-DEA, Keith, or ex-agent in Haiti, when you came across him, how do you, for instance, determine that he's not disgruntled in some way, or, you know, he might be out to get these people because of some other personal grudge that he has? Like, how do you evaluate a source like that when they come to you with what sounds like 
amazing information that advances the story? I mean, that's a great question because this is something I always tear my hair out over as well. So it was backed up by a sworn affidavit by an FBI agent who's still currently serving in the FBI. Pieces of his account were also backed up by other eyewitnesses. I can't go into it too deeply because it would point to who they are and some of their lives are at danger. But, you know, I talk with my editors like, this is who I'm speaking with. Like this person obviously is in a position to know. It's not like we just grabbed some random person off the street, you know? No, I mean, these are people who actually saw the things that they say that they saw because they were working in a position where they would be right there. So they're backing up various pieces, right? A source might be able to corroborate 75% of what Keith said. And then you get two other sources corroborating the other 25%. And so you then take the pieces together. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then you look like, what is the tiny little piece that's missing? You know, oftentimes it's like, you know, something to be true, but you're just missing that like third source. And that's the thing is everything has to be at least double sourced. And even then I would get nervous if it was double sourced. You know, I'm always looking for triple or quadruple sourcing. When you started looking into the background of Moise, who was assassinated, was all that information known in Haiti to Haitians about him and his background? Some of it, yes. I mean, there were definite suspicions, but things like his connection to Evan Daniel, who was found and accused of bringing in dozens of packages of marijuana into Haiti, was not, right? Like some of his connections, like the fact that he knew Kiko St. Remy, who was the brother-in-law of former President Michel Martelly and very influential in his cabinet, was not known. People suspected that there was some sort of tie between Moise and maybe the drug trade, but it was like very fuzzy and not really fleshed out for many people. And even though Haiti's a tiny country and it's only 11 million people and the landmass is really quite small, you also have to remember that it's like one of the most unequal places in the world. So mm-hmm. it's like you either have money or you don't. And I mean, I traveled more inside Haiti than most Haitians. Like, and I I was told that, like people were shocked at the places that I'd been. And part of the reason why Haiti is such a poorly connected country, partly because of violence, partly because of economic, you know, disarray and, you know, infrastructure being kind of crumbling. But it's also partly because there are very bad people who really want entire sections of the country closed off so they can do whatever they want to do in those port cities or fields, you know, port cities that have lots of drug shipments coming through them or agricultural fields in places that are incredibly hard to get to. And can you explain why you went to those places? I'm thinking in particular of the airfield. Um, Because we heard that that's where the, a lot of these drug shipments were coming through. So basically what's been happening is that airstrip was actually very close to the capital, Port-au-Prince. But as Haiti's economic situation got worse and things like, you know, the 2010 earthquake happened, which devastated much of the country, people started coming in. I mean, about half of the country actually now lives in the capital. And so as the slums around Port-au-Prince started to expand with this influx of people over the last, you know, 10, 15 years, all of a sudden that those drug dealers found that that airstrip that was close to the capital was right. It was abutting the slums. And at some points people in the slums started like realizing like, oh my gosh, like this is these little packages of white powder are worth, you know, thousands of dollars and, and started to actually to, to come in, you know, when airplane would land and, and people would, would swarm the airplane and steal 
all the drugs and try to sell them on the street. But the thing is, is that even though Haiti is a huge conduit for cocaine, Haitians are very poor and don't really use it. I mean, maybe like the top, top tier of society, but the majority of Haitians wouldn't know what to do with cocaine. And so, so they moved that airstrip from Port-au-Prince to basically the center of the country in this very, very kind of remote agricultural area called Savantian. And that's why I went there. And so how did you sort of operate on the ground in that environment, just from a security perspective, just because you're talking about a place where the highest political figure has been assassinated, seemingly with the help or at least acquiescence of his own security detail. The police are involved in the drug trade and you are going and poking around in both of those issues, the drug trade and the assassination. So how do you approach it from sort of like, just trying to know who's watching you or who might be watching you or what your security issues might be. I mean, I was very, 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 like I was scared, right? Like I'm not going to pretend like I was, you know, not scared. I was very scared. I was very nervous. I was very paranoid about whether or not we were being followed. Um, It's easy to see if you are being followed within that area because it's such a, vast, empty, barren field. So you can see anybody approaching you from a good distance. We were just very, very low profile. Anybody who thought that we were there thought we were there to talk about a land dispute. We didn't lie. We just, you know, it's like, you know, if the hotel owner asks you, what are you doing here? Oh, we're working. What are you working on? Well, you know, we're working on, on agriculture, Savandian, and you know, what's happening there. And you know, you're not lying, but you're not going to like say, oh, we're working on like this airstrip that has 4,000 kilograms of cocaine coming into it every few months. Like, I'm not going to just offer that up. And so, you know, we operate with a security detail, which again, we're very lucky because we can afford that. And just not telling too many people, right, about when you're going, like literally calling them the day that you get there and being like, hey, I'm here. Can you speak? And then when you do show up, making sure to get your work done as quickly as possible and maybe make another really quick trip, which is what we had to do. We had to go twice to that airstrip. So you're not going to hang out for a week. You're going to go for 48 hours, get everything you need done, and then hightail it back to the capital. Do you remember, was there a particular point where all the dots started to connect between Moise's background and the businesses he'd been involved in and the assassination? Yeah, but there was there were several aha moments, right? So I think it was so at first I kind of came into this with a tip that was 60% correct and 40% incorrect, which was you have to look at these airstrips in Seven Dion, they had thousands of kilograms of cocaine mm-hmm. delivered on this airstrip in the month before the president was killed. Okay. And then the person also said that Moise was in charge of it and was trying to basically control all of the drug trade. So you start digging into it. And the thing is, is that like, you know, you always have to doubt yourself because if you're like, oh my God, that's it. Moise is is totally into the drug trade. Then anything that kind of comes your way that contradicts that, you're going to either ignore it and you're going to be wrong, which is not what we aspire to do in journalism, or you're going to be so devastated that a portion of your information was incorrect that you're just going to throw your hands up and feel helpless. So as I started digging, you know, what I found out actually was that Moise was an incredibly naive president and no, he didn't seem to really want a part of the drug trade. He actually was just trying to like get some of these 
people who are connected to the drug trade to get off his back and stop nickeling and diming the country for everything it was worth. He was corrupt in his own ways, but he was also kind of gobsmacked by the, the amounts of corruption connected to the Martelli family. And were the eels an aha moment? We can't not talk about the eels. Yeah, so sorry. The eels were definitely an aha moment. What happened there was the thing about a place like Haiti is that people really want to help you, but they're also very aware that you get to go home at the end of the day and go live your nice life wherever you're living. And that's something I feel very bad about because I'm asking people to really stick their necks out to give me information. So what would transpire is that people would always be like, you should look at the eel trade. And I'd be like, okay, but like what on the eel trade? And I couldn't quite figure it out. I was trying to put two and two together. I couldn't figure out how eels would be connected to drugs. And then what happened was I finally went to a place called Bordupe, which is an epicenter for the eel trade. And I spoke to this guy who was very, very, very worried. He was a municipal official. And he said, well, you know, the eel trade is something that happens at night. So that's why it's suspect of being connected to the drug trade is because it happens at night. You know, you have all sorts of boats coming to shore because you can only do this fishing at night. You have all sorts of characters coming to the shore also you have people taking packages off of these boats, which they say are eels, loading them into cars and the cars tail it to the capital. And then I started to find out that actually Kiko St. Remy, who had been a close confidant of President Moise and is the brother-in-law of former President Michelle Martelli, who will probably become president again, and who has been you know, accused of drug dealing, which he denies, that he actually has a monopoly on the eel trade Mm. and that the accusation was that he was laundering money through the eel trade because it's like a multi-million dollar industry and that actually that was one of the ways that he knew president moise very early on was through both of them being connected in the eel trade now the big question that remains to me is it seems like president moise was possibly connected to the drug trade as like a two-bit player small time maybe early days, 20, 30 years ago, but he tried to go legit and be like an agricultural businessman. But that evolution is still still remains incredibly murky to me. And then you're also covering all sorts of other things at the same time. So like how much of your time is this story devoted to and how do you decide, okay, now I'm going to sit down and organize these pieces. Now's the time to get this out as opposed to all the other things that you must have in the air. Yeah, and I also had the weird luck of every time I came to Haiti, something bad would happen. So my first trip there, I showed up, and two days later, the earthquake happened. Yeah, Um, there's a reference to that in the story of one of the people you talk to then dies the next day or two days later in the earthquake. I don't know, 15 hours later or something like that. It was was really crazy. Um, So yeah, and then the second trip I went, there was a flood of Haitians who were trying to get into the United States on the border of Texas. And then we're being repatriated back. Right. So then I had to drop everything and cover that. But luckily, my colleague, Catherine Porter, was also on the ground. So she just focused on that story. And I was able to just do some reporting. Then the third time I went, 17 missionaries were kidnapped, right, American right. and Canadians. And so then I had to drop everything and do that. And I mean, but the thing is, is that like, yeah, like we have to cover the news and we also have to do these enterprise stories. But the desk was very good at being like, well, you're on the ground, so you have to do the first 48 hours and we need you to do the first 48 hours intensely. 
but then we're going to help with resources. So, and it's just about being as efficient as possible. Like I literally, I get very obsessive about things. If I have more than two hours out of the day where I have nothing going on, then that means that I'm not trying my hardest to get as many people as possible to talk to me. And so I would constantly have these lists of dozens of people I wanted to chat with. I always reserve the like last 10 pages of the back of whatever notebook I'm using to write these lists out, right? And so, okay, these are the people who knew Moise when he was in middle school. These are the people who knew Moise when he was in high school and university. These are the people who knew Martine Moise's wife. And then these are the people who, you know, were like connected to him when he was in advising him when he was doing his presidential run. And then these were the people that were in his government. And I rank these people like this is the most important, important person from this part of his life. This is a must have interview. And I'm always shocked at the people who I always think are going to be the most important end up being the least important. And the people where like on a day where I'm just like, I've been working 15 hours I think I'm going to cancel because he doesn't seem to be that important. Those people are always into being the most important. And um, this has happened on several stories. You know, everybody tries to go for like the big guys, but actually it's the middle guys who end up having the most information. And then the other thing is that every day I would always update that list. Mm. So that's why I would always have 10 pages because that list would just grow and grow and grow. And every time I sat down with somebody, even if they were wholly, like totally useless, provided absolutely nothing of, of interest. I would always ask them at the end of every interview, who do you think I need to speak to? I want to speak to anybody. I want to speak to like, you know, the nanny that Moise hired for his children. I will speak to anybody. Who should I speak with? And then I'm constantly updating that list. What happens if you use up all the uh, 10 pages? Then it gets very nerve wracking. <laughs> <laughs> so the story lands and what kind of feedback did you get on it, either from sources or from people in general? The main reaction was, I mean, it was kind of sad because it was a lot of people saying, we suspected this. We suspected that drugs were involved. We don't like what's become to our country. It's basically become basically a narco state. But this is like the most detailed accounting that puts all the pieces together. People were shocked about the yield trade. Nobody knew about that except for people who were involved in the yield trade. Um, and then you had you had the Martelli family was completely shocked because the, the story took uh, a hard look at them and the way that they were behaving toward Moise. I mean, they really had a stranglehold over his government from everything I've been told. And you have to understand that like in Haiti, the impunity has just been compounded over the years. Like nobody's ever, people get away with all sorts of crimes all the time, unless you're poor. Um, and so these people think that they're untouchable and they didn't feel like they had to respond to my multiple requests for comment and the storylands. And they think that like, you know, Kiko St. Remy once, like he told me like, so I, I, you know, I deny everything that, uh, that you're asking me. I didn't do any of this stuff. So obviously you have no story and there's no need for you to write it. And I was mm-hmm. like, well, that's not the way it works, but thank you very much. I will say that you decline, you know, that you deny all these allegations. And so the Martellis were shocked because they are royalty and royalty is not treated this way. And it was about a week later that they start to challenge things. 
And so, you know, smear campaigns, you know, the regular bullshit, I'm the mistress of so-and-so or whatever. I mean, like, and, and the funny thing about all of these people who are just being accused of all sorts of things, whether they're in Sri Lanka or India or Pakistan or the United States or Haiti or Mexico, it's always the same boring accusation and smear campaign that you're the mistress of somebody. I mean, it's like, please just like find something else. Some, find something smarter to, to use. But people in Haiti were like very, very, they're angry at their own journalists for not having broken the story. But that's really a sad thing because their own journalists don't have enough resources to break a story like that. They have excellent contacts, but like they might not actually have the bandwidth to, to do a big story like that. So last question, then I'll let you go. I mean, you've mentioned several times that Martelli, who you've dug into very deeply, is the former and likely future president of Haiti, you're still the bureau chief. How do you approach now covering going forward these same people on a sort of more regular routine basis? You know, I mean, if they want to talk, they can talk. Like, I would be perfectly happy to have an interview with Michelle Martelli. I don't think he would grant me one. I think he's kind of more into doing his little YouTube videos to declare things and then not having to answer questions. He's not the type of man who wants to answer questions at all, right? Unless it's like a friendly radio interviewer who he's buddies with and is not going to ask anything of substance, really. So you know, we got to keep covering Haiti and we will. And this is what I keep telling all of these people. Like, we're not going to stop covering Haiti just because you don't like us. Like, I could care less if, you know, who am I? I'm Marie Habib. I'm nobody. Like, at the end of the day, like, you owe it to your citizens to talk to the media because if you can't talk to the media and actually answer some questions, then how are you going to run a country? We're not doing this for ourselves. We're doing this because, you know, we think that Haiti matters and we think that, Haitians, like all citizens of this world, actually deserve some some answers to their questions and to also know what the truth is. Well, it's an amazing story and congratulations on the award and thank you for doing this. Thank you. Thank you so much. That's it for this episode. Thanks to Maria for taking the time to speak with me. We'll have more Polk Award winners for the rest of this week. I'm Evan Ratliff. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. This episode was edited by Gabriella Saldivia. Thanks to her. Thanks to John Darton and everyone at the Polk Awards and to our partners at Fox Media. And thank you for listening and supporting the show. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.